welcome you all. This is Anna speaking. And this is Jorge speaking. And you're listening to Literary Tea Podcast. This is the second episode of our second lit trilogy called Frozen Flowers. And today's episode is called Feminine Writing, a Style or an Issue? I think a good way to start this episode today is by the question, what is feminine writing or feminine literature? And I think that's practically a common sense that defines feminine lit as something that talks about feelings, introspection, sentimentalism, and love conflicts. Right, and these elements, they're actually considered to be feminine because of what Virginia Woolf calls feminine social values and masculine social values. She states that uh, the values that are considered to be social, they're also transferred to lit. And she argues so in A Room of One's Own, which was an essay published in 1929, and this specific excerpt uh, says that, yet it is the masculine values that prevail. So, speaking crudely, football and sport are important. The worship of fashion, the buying of clothes, the trivial. And these values are inevitably transferred from life to fiction. This is an important book, the critic assumes, because it deals with war. This is, a, this is an insignificant book because it deals with the feelings of women in a drawing room. A scene in a battlefield is more important than a scene in a shop. Everywhere, and much more subtly, the difference of value persists. This is very interesting because in our last episode of this lit trilogy, we mentioned some famous authors from the 19th century, such as Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters, whose names are also mentioned in Wolfe's essay, such as in the part that she says, What genius! What integrity it must have required in face of all that criticism! in the midst of that purely patriarchal society, to hold fast to the thing as they saw it without shrinking. Only Jane Austen did it and Emily Bronte. It is another feather, perhaps the finest, in their caps. They wrote as women write, not as men write. And what do you think that implies, Anna, in their works? To write as women and not as men? Well, if we think about Jane Austen, for example, and also about this argument of Wolf, of uh, what you have in your real life or in on your daily life, influence on your on your work. I believe that because daily lives is, I think, one of the primary sources of of uh, a creation of art any kind of art. So in, in Jane Austen, for example, if we take into consideration her novels, we have uh, a pattern, as we can say, like this, that is, most of them has a background of a daily family lives. Uh, what, did, what did they do? What, what were their concerns, uh, surviving concerns, etc. And most of them these families are always worried about the marriage thing, especially to marry their daughters. And this is another uh, very frequent characteristic of Jane Austen's books, 
that is the the amount of feminine characters that we have in, in on her works. So they are always thinking about marriage, they are always thinking about their future as uh, with the options that they have that are simply um, to be a wife, to to build a family, um, but I want to marry this man because he is rich or because I love him or, or both <laughs> in some situations. So we, ha we have also these these dualities of sense and sensibility, pride and prejudice that are also names of, that are also titles of her, her works. So this I think this is the most, um, imp not important but the most uh, apparent thing that we have in on on Jane Austen's works. And what about you? You you are. Um, a fan of the Bronte sisters. I am. So, what characteristics of Wolf's argument can you find in the Bronte sisters' works? Yeah, I found it very notable that she mentions uh, Wuthering Heights alongside with Jane Austen, because Wuthering Heights is my favorite uh, novel from the Bronte sisters, and actually from Emily. And I couldn't identify at first these feminine social values that she put in the novel, but I think that they're, they have to do a lot with social status. That also reminds me of Jane Austen, because I've been reading Pride and Prejudice and I could have noticed this that you have mentioned about marriage, uh, the concern for the future and so on. So I think that it also applies a bit to Wuthering Heights, because the, the protagonist Catherine, she, uh, even though she loves Heathcliff. I think you all know who Heathcliff is, I don't have to delve into that, but uh, she she knows that she loves him, but she says to Nelly that it will degrade her to marry Heathcliff. Why so? Because of social status. So that's why she decides to marry Edgar Linton. And uh, something that is also interesting about the what would be a feminine characteristic of the novel is that she's a very feeble woman she has a very strong heart she's a uh, spirit also yeah i think that's better spirit she's very spirited in this sense but she's feeble she's always fall falling ill for basically anything and uh, especially the things that concerns her nerves yeah she has lots of nervous breakdowns <laughs> during the novel. And uh, I think that what makes it different for the time, uh, that makes a difference from, from what would be expected of women characters in novels, is exactly the fact that Catherine is not a refined woman. She is the antagonism of uh, refinement. So she, okay, she is spirited, and it also reflects something that was not, should not be expected of women at the time. So yeah, I think that the fact that she was not, she is not a refined woman comparing to Edgar, for example, mm -hmm. uh, defines this, uh, this small but notable transgression in the narrative. Interesting that you mention other aspects of this character that um, 
contrasts with this fragile uh, aura that was expected from a woman at that, at that time, because we also have that in Jane Austen's works. So Elizabeth Bennet, for example, she, of course, of course, she is a product of that time. She um, doesn't expect anything else than to be married someday, even though that she is delaying this, this situation. But she's very um, intelligent and ironic, sarcastic, yeah. and these are also characteristics that were not usual for women to have or to behave at that time. We've been talking about women writers in the 19th century so far, right? Yes. And mainly the most famous ones, as we did in the last episode. So, but if we go through the 20th century, what famous women writers do we have? I would say that Virginia Woolf, Clarice Lispector and Ligia Fagundes Telles are the main representations of women writers, especially because they, the they perpass the 20th century. You see, even though Virginia started publishing her works in the 20th century, she was born and raised with Victorian values. And Clarice and Ligia, they published along the 20th century. Ligia especially is a special case because she's still alive until today, until 2021. And her last work was a novel published in the 2000. So the three of them perpassed the century. And I, for me and for this discussion here, I think there are good representations. Also because we would like to um, highlight here in this episode some Brazilian authors to uh, get away a little bit from the, the English scenario. Yeah. We've been quite European. Yeah, and, and so far. So they are good examples of this. And uh, we have some interesting points to consider when we talk about this trio. Okay, uh, they all have some things in common concerning their styles, but they also have some particularities that that is what makes them them. And that are worth highlighting, right? Yes. So if we consider the same argument from Virginia, we'll be talking about social values and social, um, social values, historical moments, and etc. And yes, they are all from the same century. And what, the, what does it imply on their writing? I think one one thing that calls my attention when I when I remember of the 20th century is that it was a century of many changes especially about mind you know mm -hmm. we started to think about ourselves as people as individuals even more and the fact that uh, values began to change also mm -hmm. give room for women to publish more. Yes. Right? So I think that 
uh, all these changes, even though they were problematic in terms of identity for women, I, I think for everyone facing, if we face the context of the wars, for example, but the impact that all this had uh, on society, as Virginia Woolf claims, it affected literature. And I do think that the most notable thing about this is uh, to highlight about this is the change of values. So I think I do think that the change of values from in, in the in case of England, from the Victorian England to Edwardian England and so on, until we have today, until what we have today, and in the case of Brazil as well, uh, with the the upcoming of modernism. So I think that the change of values really contributed to give space to women. Uh, if we go back now to England, before we consider the Brazilian Brazilian uh, writers, you mentioned Virginia Woolf uh, as a representation of a woman writer of the 20th century. Yes. What have you read of her? And what can you say about her style after reading something by her? Well, I've started recently reading Mrs. Dalloway and also To the Lighthouse. And what I can say about her that I've noticed is that she writes as she was in the character's mind, you know. And you, George, have you ever read anything from Virginia Woolf? Yes, I have. I think I have read two short stories and a novel. But the novel that I read... Uh, but the novel that I read wasn't wasn't the famous one, the, on on the hall of the famous ones. It was the waves, but I agree what with what you said. I could notice that too, and I even could notice uh, some similarities between Virginia's writing and our uh, Brazilian respecto. Mm. In which sense you you say that? Uh, in terms of. To, to get from what you said about characters' minds in terms of introspection and uh, reflection of what is going on in the characters' minds. <laughs> let, me, let me make it clear. For example, uh, we have in Clarice Lispector, in, in her writing, uh, uh, access to the dilemmas and the, crisis. The, the problems and all the crises that uh, especially uh, women protagonists that they're going through. I couldn't notice this in the same way in Virginia Woolf, but we also have access to the characters' feelings and their perceptions about things. I could see this in The Waves, the novel that I read, because she's constantly shifting, the narrator is constantly shifting from one character to another and presenting their thoughts and their perception on the reality of the space and setting in the novel. This is interesting because Ligia also uses a little bit of that, maybe a bit different, but I would say that they are in the same group. Uh, that is this, she assumes a, a, a role of the narrator in the story, not she, there is a narrator in the story. And this narrator goes into the character's mind. So if we think about As Meninas from Ligia, we have three main characters 
in the story. They are friends and it's very peculiar that sometimes you don't know if the narrator is telling us uh, the thoughts of this character or that character and you you can say after when you get used to it you can say to which one the narrator is referring to but in the beginning it's a bit confusing because it's so fluid that you don't even notice when things change you know so i think it's a thing in common of them oh my god i've perceived it i've started as meninas this week but i haven't got to the third uh main character yet okay i'm right in the beginning but i could see this that you that you mentioned uh it's very subtle right? very very Does subtle. A change of uh, speech from one character to another yeah so i think <laughs> we could consider this um something in common from them i think so and i think this can relate to something that was very present in the 20th century that was the existentialism oh, yeah the some philosophical trends about existentialism so um i think they as a as a product from this century they reflected these things on their writings right yeah i can see that very clearly on Claudius respect i can't really tell uh how I can notice this in Virginia Woolf because I can't retell I can't recall now if the novel that I read presented these issues but yeah it did for some characters there were some characters in this novel the waves because it's a story uh, of five different characters and they each of them is telling one chapter of the story okay but I like a point that, of view yeah Kind of Perfect. Story. A point of view kind of story. And I think that one or two characters are more existentialist than others. They are constantly, they're constantly uh, making questions about life, uh, life purpose, and, of, and so on. But I, I can see this very clearly in Claudette Lispector, especially in her acclaimed novel, A Paixão Segundo GH. And yes. you read this one too, right? I've read recently this one too. And it's interesting because... But there is a bit different difference because uh, sometimes it's not sometimes Jaga uh, that is the the main character she is narrating the story so it's she narrating about herself in the case of Ligia there is a narrator it's not a character so maybe this is a difference mm -hmm. but in any way it's a, a very existentialism existentialist story Jaga uh, is constantly making reflection and having crisis about who she is and what kind of love she believes to to be a good option to have uh, what what were her mistakes on her life so far how can she break from these chains of of ideals that she had and how it happens it's very uh, it's very crazy it's, it's very unusual but at the same time 
it's interesting because when you read Clarice, at the same time that it seems strange how things go on, on the story, at the same time you feel familiar with that because sometimes simply things happen to you and you start thinking about these things and you cannot explain. And the way she writes is exactly how your thoughts happen, you know? I think that Clarice, if she could listen what you have just said, she would be so happy right now. No, yeah, because uh, in her <laughs> last interview, uh, she uh, she was open for an, for an interview uh, when she was uh, near uh, from her death. Of course, she, of course, I, she didn't know she was dying. I think, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's one of her last yeah, interviews. Yeah, it is her last interview, and it was only published after her death. It was, uh, she asked for that, to be published after her death, and it's available on YouTube. And she says that uh, people considered her writing to be hermetic, and indeed, some critics at that time uh, used to say that her writing was hermetic and difficult, and here in Brazil there is this common sense that reading Clarice is difficult. And she even questions this in the interview because she says that uh, a professor from the university came to her saying that he read the same novel three times and he still couldn't get what it was about. And he was talking about G.H., uh, A Paixão Segundo G.H. And uh, weeks later, uh, a girl from high school came to her and said that A Paixão Segundo G.H., <coughs> was her bedside novel. And now, getting from what you said, uh, she, she, sa she says in this interview that to understand her, you don't need to be a professor, an academic. an academic, highly educated. You just need to feel her, to feel the writing. And that's what you say. I think that's very interesting of her. Uh, it's not always, I have the impression that it's not always that I can understand her because I think that my experience, my human being, uh, individual experience uh, has a lot or uh, contributes a lot to my reading of her novels, depending on the novel. And I could uh, relate to that when I read A Paixão Segundo de Agar, too. I could relate also, not only this book, but also other books that, that she wrote. When I read... It, Actually, she has another book called uh, Uma Aprendizagem ou Livro dos Prazeres. And I tried, I tried to read that book three times. On different times on, of my life. And on the third time, I understood. I could read. On the, the two first times, I, I only read, you know, the... the three first pages of the book and I gave up but the third time I started reading I read it at once because it it made it made sense to me at that time it was clear what was happening was clear but before it wasn't so it's I understand this argument of her it's about how you feel that's why I always say that when I read Clarice I have to be prepared <laughs> It's not any time. It's not this kind of reading that any time you get the, at any time you get the book, you will read. You have to be prepared. You have to be in the mood. Yeah, I think that if you want to have 
a any time experience with Clarice's writing, you could go to the short stories first. Yes, it's they, a good way. They are easier to grasp at first. It, you know, it's interesting <laughs> that uh, I've I've heard the same argument about Virginia Woolf. You know. That she's not easy to be read. I don't find her easy to be read. <laughs> <laughs> I struggled a lot. Me too. To read her short stories. The short stories. The short stories. Can you believe that? I believe. <laughs> I believe, brother. <laughs> and also because, uh, as we are English students, English teachers, I don't know you, but I have this feeling of... Uh, of... I... I know English, so I have to read. Yeah. She, I have to read her books in English, and that makes it difficult <laughs> because sometimes I don't follow her ideas, and I don't know if that is on purpose or is that because I'm dumb. <laughs> yeah, I have the same impression because I just can't grasp the meaning. Like at times, <laughs> I can, I can even follow the, 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 the narrative construction what what is happening now and then and after i can't i simply can't yeah it's it, that's why i don't i don't fight with with the argument or with people that say i don't like i don't like her writings i don't like clarice's writings i understand because we have to be in the mood we have to be yeah. prepared so we can feel what they what they're saying uh, when i read the waves it was the only novel that I read by Virginia Woolf. Completely? What? You read it completely? Yeah, I read. I read it all. <laughs> it, it, I struggled a lot. I, actually, we are in February. Yeah. Yeah. It is, okay. It's, I read it one year ago. Exactly one year ago. Uh, I struggled a lot because it was the first time that I was facing a novel written by her. I was afraid at first because I hadn't... Uh, I hadn't grasped the meanings of the short stories that I attempted to read first. So I was like, how am I going to read a novel like this? With this style of writing. What am I doing with yeah. my life? So at times I had to go back like three pages, four pages to, <laughs> to you know, to put myself on the setting and see what was going on uh, when I finished reading, reading yesterday to continue today. But from the middle to the end of the book, when I got, when I got used to the... Her style. To her style. For that narrative, I could see how brilliant the story was. Yeah. It's a very, very good story. But I think that there is this kind of thing that you said. We, we have to be in the mood and also get used to the style. We have also... We have almost to be in an existential crisis to read them. <laughs> yeah, at least for Clarice, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me too. And okay, we talked about some things in common that these authors have. But they also have peculiar things. So, for example, Ligia, as a Brazilian author, and especially from the middle of the last, the last century, she talked, of course, of a lot of um, social issues. So the, the, the place of women in society, for example, in Ciranda de Pedra, one of her f most famous novels, but in As Meninas, for example, is one of other famous novels that she has. She um, puts into the into the narrative the the 
issue of the dictatorship in Brazil. And that one of the, the three girls from the title, we have three girls. One of the girls is very engaged with um, the left party mm. and she um, is very conscious about these issues in Brazil. Very the opposite from the other two girls in the story. One of them is a model, so she basically, she doesn't think much. She, she she's worried about her body and etc. And the other girl is very a bourgeoisie kind of girl, which was, as we have until today, a social class that it's kind of doesn't know actually what is happening in society, it doesn't get informed that much. So Ligia, she had this same thing of the other authors of talking about what was, what was happening in the character's mind, but she also brought into her, her works some social critics. And I think this may be something that we can say that it's about her style. But what can you say about, for example, Clarice's style? Uh, okay, I can mention some characteristics pointed by uh, some scholars, right? So, so at least uh, in the 20th century, Antonio Cândido, a very important uh, scholar here in Brazil, a literary critic, he considered Clarice's writing to be in um, approximation novel, in the sense that he considered her writing to be very close to her real life. Mm -hmm. So he could see uh, re uh, relations between her work and her life. So it has a, almost an autobiograph autobiographical aspect on her yeah. works. For, for Antonio Cândido, yes. Millet pointed her writing as girlish because of an excess of sentimentalism. Which matches the arguments of, of Virginia Woolf. Yeah, of feminine values, right. And then uh, other scholars began to point some different aspects of her writing. So her writing has been tried to be classified in so many different ways. So it was called philosophical and existentialist, as we're talking right now. Yeah. Uh, feminine and feminist, too. Mm -hmm. I... I haven't read much of her to to say that I can see this, but I think it is quite subtle in some in some writings. works. Yeah, but yeah, we see this feminist uh, we see points in writing as a mean of freedom or this need to confess. In, in a Passion Segundo Jaga, we see this this very close relation with the reader. Yes. As if Giaga was almost trying to confess. She's confessing, right? She's con not only not only crisis. she, but some other characters. They are always confessing. It's it's like they're uh, having a therapy moment. Yeah. Right. And also, uh, her writing was considered is considered to be transgressive. I'd say that to you know, I'd say that. There is something interesting of her writing uh, that we can find in her last novel, the last novel that she published while she was still alive, A Hora da Estrela. Uh, I read this in high school, but I think it's so interesting that in this novel we still have this 
existentialist style, but at the same time we have a social critic. And she was criticized in the, at first for not uh, bringing uh, social aspects in her novels. Because it was very common at the time, uh, because she was part of the third movement of the modernism in Brazil, and this mm -hmm. third movement usually brought uh, social aspects and critics, but she didn't. Or at least not that much, or not in a very overt manner. And in A Hora da Estrela, her last novel, she talks about a woman, a girl from Alagoas, who moves to Rio, I think it is Rio, but at least to the southeast. And that was very common at the time, you know. I had, I, I have uh, uncles that moved from here, from here, Paraíba, to Sao Paulo to work. And uh, that was very common at the time. So we, we see these social critics of uh, the, almost this exodus of people from the northeast to the southeast and how mm -hmm. they suffer also over there. Yes. And she brings this to, the, to this novel, which is also considered a little bit autobiographical because when, she, when her family moved from Ukraine to Brazil, they established themselves in the northeast and then they went to the southeast of the country. And I think another interesting uh, aspect of her writing, very peculiar, is the punctuation. It's very, very different. Some, some books start with a, a comma. Oh yeah, I saw that she has... A she, dash. Yeah, she has a short story that begins with a relative pronoun, for example. Yeah, that's it. Uh, um Aprendizagem ou, ou Livro dos Prazeres, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it starts with a two point and ends with a comma. And when I finished reading the book and I started to think about what I read, etc., I started thinking about the meaning of that punctuation in the book. Mm -hmm. So two points means that you are about to say something, about to explain, about to, etc. Right. Right? And it starts like this. It's an ex the beginning of the story is an explanation about Lori, the, the woman, and Ulysses, the male character. And how did they meet? How are they trying to get together, but at the same time they are preparing their spirits to free from some issues, etc., to be together. And in the end of the book, when they are together, finally, the book finishes with a comma. Mm -hmm. And comma has a sense of, of not only a little pause, but something that is about to come. Yeah. Some, uh, a list, for example. Uh, a, con a continuum sense, you know? So it's interesting because this continual sense appears when the story finishes in the book, but in real life or in the life of the fiction is starting right now. They are together finally. So I think at first when we see Clarice's punctuation, I would say punctuality again. When we see her punctuation, we think that it's random. Uh, we think that it's meaningless, but I do think that she didn't put that randomly. She had a reason to do so. And that 
which I thought was very nice of you to point out, is one of the characteristics of what we call stream of consciousness. Yes. The stream of consciousness is very notable in Clarice's writing and uh, uh, it differs, for example, from just indirect speech. I could notice indirect speech in Ligia Fagundestanli's As Meninas. I've just started it, but there is indirect speech. I couldn't see stream of consciousness in the sense that we see in Clarice, because in Clarice we, we see the... It's very strong yeah, in Clarice's words. We delve in the character's feelings and thoughts, but not only because of the words that she chooses to present the facts or the thoughts, but because of the punctuation as well. Yeah. Uh, a few weeks ago, when we were uh, thinking about this episode and how to build the the arguments and etc, we saw a post on um, an Instagram page. What was the name, Jorge, of the page? Uh, Literatura Inglesa Brasil. And it was created by? Marcela. I don't remember now her surname, but it's Marcela. She's a scholar from... A, she's an academic woman yeah. from... Rio. Rio de Janeiro. And she published an interesting post that was a, a little discussion, an important discussion also, about this name, feminine writing, feminine literature, and how it can be problematic. And she mentions in this post especially Virginia's works. And we decided to bring it to this episode because it's uh, it can be a, a very intriguing discussion as well. When we think about feminine writing, feminine literature, what do you think, George, of, of this name, of this... this Expression? This, uh, this labor that we have here. Mm. Label, I think label is a good word. Yeah. Because uh, I think that the moment we label a literature or a writing to be feminine, we understand by this that all women, they write in the same way. Or at least that they share all these common, these supposed common characteristics for yeah. every writing of them. So I think that's the reason, one of the reasons why that I can mention for the problematization of this and i think that this label is reinforces what uh not only virginia wolf said on the room of one's own on, on her essay but also a common sense that we have that women are always going to write about feelings women are always going to write about um introspection and etc and we just discussed previously right now three authors that are very important for literature history in brazil and in, in england and they okay they share some things in common but they also have their own style and maybe what they share in common it's much more related to social events that they lived in the 20th century since right. they are from the same century, then because they're women, you know? And it's interesting. We, we have a, a text from another academic from Brazil, Davi Pinho, in which he, 
discuss a little bit about this androgyny aspect of Virginia's works. Uf herself, uh, she talks about this androgyny, uh, androgynous, androgynistic, androgynistic yeah, <laughs> aspect. Aspect, yeah. yeah. Uh, when she mentions Shakespeare, she says something about Shakespeare uh, being the one who understood, maybe without knowing, of course, the term, but he was able to become this androgynous, androgynous in his writings. Uh, and we can see that in his, in his works, that there is a place for men and women and they are interchangeable as well. Mm -hmm. I think, if I'm not wrong, uh, it has to do with this interchanging of genres along the writing, along the characteristics the of the characters, right? Yeah, and sometimes when we read Virginia, uh, it, it, sometimes it, it has a sense that it really doesn't matter if she's talking about a woman or a man. And I'm not talking about the main character, mm -hmm. of course, in this sense, they, they, it's obvious that she's going to mention. But some people that passes, passes through the setting of the story. Uh, I think we can notice that there is a, a, a work from Virginia called Orlando. Orlando. <laughs> And um, it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's about a character that is um, gender fluid, if we can say like this. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it, it really, this narrative really focused on this androgynistic or androgynous aspect. Of and, the character. And that reinforces uh, her, her, her points that are mentioned by Davi Pinho. But, Jorge, if this is problematic, feminine writing or feminine literature, because it, it, has a, it carries a sense that all women are going to write the same, the same way, not the same uh, subjects, the same way, what do you think that it could be a more proper label? Well, I, I know that even what I think that would be a more proper label or a more proper way to call these writings written by women, uh, they might. It might also be problematic at some point because we're always we're always uh, thinking and, yeah, and reflecting about and things. Thinking that... about everything, but I think that it would be nice to call these writings as uh, women authorship writings or female authorship writings because we transfer the 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 feminine for example the adjective feminine to the to the author to the author instead of the work to the work it's much more about the author than about the work the yes. work is uh, it's it's not a part at least it, it's not a rule that it has to be a part of the the author exactly so i think that the idea of feminine or better saying uh, female authorship or women authorship novels, women authorship writing could be a little bit more appropriate or adequate.
This was the second part of our lit trilogy Frozen Flowers. Stay tuned to part 3 to join us in this series. With our special guest. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at lit.podcast to know more about our projects. See y'all on the third episode of Frozen Flowers.